0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, get them open to Mark chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, there is a black one and see back in front of you. If you get to page 889, we'll be reading on page 889 and 890 today. You'll be right there with us in Mark chapter 3. We're actually going to end chapter 3 in our study of the book of Mark today, and I'll be diving into Mark 4 next week. But we're excited that you're here. I want to thank all of you for coming. If you're a guest, we're especially uh, grateful that you are here this morning. It's good to have you, and uh, you guys are always like the early risers of the contemporary service. And so I don't know whether you should feel good about that or bad about that, but we're glad you're here no matter what, right? We're glad, uh, we're glad to have you for our 9.30 service and um, we're thankful for each person who set aside time in their life and their busy schedule to be here today. We, we trust and pray that the Lord is gonna bless you for that. And I'm gonna ask you uh, to join me in, uh, in praying and asking for his blessing on this time. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for the opportunity we've had uh, to worship you. We're thankful for the chance we've already had to fellowship. We're thankful for, uh, just God, just the health and ability to gather uh, together. Um, We know there are people who want to be here today and can't, God. And so um, help us to be grateful that we can be. And uh, we pray you'd be with them. And then, Lord, as we open your word, we we ask that you just continue um, doing what you've already begun in in the worship of your name. God, that you would move, that your spirit would be able to uh, go through this place unchecked. God, that we would be humble responders to you this morning. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. So five years ago, uh, God blessed our family with twin girls, and not surprisingly, life has never been the same since. Uh, I keep finding uh, that I'm learning new things through each season of their development, but the person I've learned the most about is me. Uh, for instance, they're, they're at an age now where they, they want to be my shadow base. They want to do literally every single thing that I'm doing. And, and I'm trying to embrace it because I know there's a day coming in which they won't want to do that, right? But if I'm honest, this desire there is just either super great or just not fun at all. And it all depends on what I'm doing at the time. Right, Their are experiences that I have with them. And, and, and I wouldn't say they're annoying. I would just say they just make me so tired, Right? One of them is going to their older sister's ball games. It's just exhausting. And it's because I'm sitting in bleachers, uh, and there are other people around us, and I'm very concerned about their experience. And so as five-year-olds, there's only one thing they want, and that is to be in constant motion. They have to be moving at all times. And when everyone around you is sitting still and watching something, those two things don't go together very well. And again, there's two of them, right? And so it's more heightened. And so I spend half the game trying to watch their older sisters and half trying to contain them. And the result is I leave every single game just completely tired. Another is like crowded public places, whether it's stores or restaurants or or, or even here at church, where I'm like, all right, all right, I need you to stay with me, right? Stay in this safe little circle. Please don't go run over an old person, right? Don't, Don't knock a cane out of somebody's hands. Don't bother them. Don't take everything you want off the shelves. And so I'm constantly worried about just kind of containing them in their special blend of chaos. And every parent can relate with this. But then there are times. When we go in our backyard or we go to a park or an open field or hike in the woods and I'm not concerned at all with containing them and I just let them be. And I follow them and I watch them and I I get down on their level and and I'm not trying to force them into some kind of box and I just enjoy it immensely. Because in those moments, their their energy and their curiosity and their emotion, they're not burdens, they're joys. And I found myself saying things to my wife like, man, you know, the twins were really bad today, or they were really good today. And it dawned on me, they weren't acting any different. It was my expectations, right? It was my attempts at containment that, that shaped how I viewed their behavior in those experiences. And I mention that because we're closing out this section in chapter 3 in the book of Mark. And Mark has done an interesting thing in this back half of this chapter we've been in the last few weeks. The second half of chapter 3 has been all about how people are reacting to Jesus. It was such a big deal that everybody was forced to react to him. They could not ignore him. But what we're going to see today is that the reactions that people had to Jesus had more to do with them than it actually had to do with Jesus. What they're doing is they were trying to contain Jesus. They're trying to keep him in a box. They wanted him to meet their expectations of him. And when he patently refused, they responded and pushed back. And we're going to notice that, and then we're going to ask God to show us how we can be guilty of the very same thing, how we subconsciously, and even sometimes consciously, posture as if God needs to meet my expectations, as if he needs to fit in the box that I provide for him. And whenever we do this, we're always going to end up like the people in Mark 3. We're always going to end up disappointed because Jesus is uncontainable. He is not and never will be bound by our expectations of him. And so if you've ever been confused by God, you've ever felt disappointed by him or something he's done in your life, you've ever had one of your prayers answered in the exact opposite way of what you prayed for, then my hope is that today you will see why that's actually a very hopeful and encouraging and good reality. So, I'm going to invite Chris Mathis up to read today's passage. He's going to be reading Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with him to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. And anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Thank you, Chris. You guys have a seat. As always, keep your Bibles open there. And this, this section has really started in verse 20 of, of chapter 3. And from there to the end of chapter, Mark is recording for us different reactions that people had to Jesus. Now remember, right, Jesus was a rabbi, okay, which means he was a religious teacher. He had disciples who followed him. And, and what's most interesting about this section in Mark 3 uh, is that Mark is recording reactions from people that you would think should be on Jesus' side. Right? The, the religious teachers and leaders, you would think they would support another religious teacher or leader. And almost every rabbi enjoyed the support of their family because being a rabbi was seen as a distinguished profession that would bring honor to the family. And yet, as we've already seen in the book of Mark, Jesus clashed with the religious leaders of his day more than anybody. And this passage that Chris just read for you, it actually starts as a continuation of an event that Mark recorded for us in verse 20. So look at verse 20 where it says Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so they're not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. And so even Jesus' family didn't understand him. Right, so we're, we're, we're like The scene is set is this, that Jesus enters the house and he begins teaching and healing people and accepting people and receiving people. And so many people are coming. And we've already seen this a lot, Mark, haven't we? So many people are coming to him that hours and hours and hours pass and he doesn't even take a break to eat. It reminds me of something he tells his disciples in John 4 when he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. But when Jesus' immediate family, they hear of this level of hysteria, they decide they want to have an intervention. Now, we aren't told what their exact motives are. They might have been pure, right? It could have been genuine concern for Jesus' health. It could have been they thought they needed to somehow save Jesus from himself. It could have been much more sinister than that. Like they thought his fame had gone to his head and they needed to knock him down a peg. We see this referenced in John chapter 7 where Jesus' brothers give him this really sarcastic advice to go to the festival and do all these teachings and miracles because nobody who wants to be a public figure would do these things in the small towns you're doing them in. And they didn't mean it because the very next verse tells us this, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, this group here in Mark 3 includes Jesus' mother and his sisters and his brothers. And so it's possible there is likely a mix of motivations here. But whatever their motivations were, what Jesus is doing makes no sense to them at all. And this was not new for him. His life, his values, his teachings, his actions and movements, they were nonsensical to everybody. Because he wasn't trying to live a life that would make sense to people. He had a singular aim for his life. He lived for an audience of one. Here's how he puts it in John 6. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do what? But to do the will of him who sent me. You see, God's son, Jesus' only aim was to do the will of his father. And God's desires, God's will, God's plans, God's ways, they don't ever match up and coincide with the will and wishes and plans of humanity. Which is why the most consistent response you see to Jesus in the Gospels is one of amazement. Because he wasn't predictable. Because he didn't value what we value. He didn't pursue what he was expected to pursue. He didn't go where you would guess a rabbi would go. He didn't talk to who you'd think he would talk to. And he did talk to those that you think he would avoid. Every, literally, everything this guy did, everything Jesus did, made no sense to the world around him, including his own family. Which begs a really piercing question. If our lives make sense to the world around us, are we truly following Jesus the level we should? Secondly, Jesus is establishing the family of God. In verse 31, his his, immediately, his physical family comes to this house where he is, and, and they're attempting this intervention of sorts, and they can't get in, so they send word in. And people tell him, Jesus, your mother, your brother sisters, they're all outside, and they want to talk to you. And again, Jesus being unpredictable, he has this uncanny ability to ask piercing questions you're really not sure how to answer. Look at verse 33. He says, he replied to them who are my mother and my brothers now you can probably picture the confusion in the crowd there can't you like we asked this question they're like wait he doesn't he doesn't know who his family is or is this a rhetorical question or am i supposed to answer this question for him or, or what's he getting at here and so he lets it sit for a second then he continues in verse 34 looking at those sitting in a circle around him he said here are my mother and my brothers he continues in verse 35, whoever does the will of God is my mother, is my brother and my sister and mother. And so he looks at those who are seated in a circle around him, right? Those who are, who are listening to him, those who are following him, those who are receiving from him in that moment. And he says, these people right here, this is my family. But then he doesn't limit it there, right? He, he expands it beyond the physical location where he is. He, fa- he says, in fact, anybody who does the will of my father, remember that was the one aim for his life. Any who does the will of my father, they are my mother, brother, sister. They are my family. Now Jesus is not dismissing the structure and design of the family. He's not reversing any of the other teachings the Bible has on this matter. But what he is doing is he's establishing a family that exceeds in importance all other families and that is the family of God. John 1 tells us that to all who did receive him, that's all who did receive Jesus, he gave them the right to be what? To be children of God. To those who believe in his name it is an immense privilege and honor to be in the family of god it's an eternal blessing it's one that comes to us only by grace and to be a part of the family of god comes by one thing according to jesus which is doing the will of god which begs the question what is god's will for humanity well the bible answers that god's will for humanity is for us to recognize the lordship of his son jesus and surrender to it and by the way, God will get what he wants. Philippians chapter 2 tells us of the fullness of time. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? The glory of God the Father. Every single knee will bow. Every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that day will bring God the Father much glory because that's what his will for humanity is. But the Bible says, for those of us who do this in this life, not when it's fully apparent and and, and there's no other option, but for those who believe and surrender and submit their lives to Jesus here, he gives them the right to become children of God. And we are brought into an eternal family, a family that has deeper connections and weightier ramifications than any other association in our life. Which, by the way, is all good news. I mean, think about it. The Bible teaches that Jesus came and took on our form and died in our place and rose again. He offers us freely forgiveness. He offers us eternal life. He offers to make us a child of God. He's literally making heaven possible for us. There's not bad news in there. And so why did so many people have a problem with Jesus Christ? Why do so many people today still have a problem with Jesus? Why can there be suitable ads for beer and fast food and chips and shopping and more, but the only one people have a problem with is one about Jesus? Well, there's likely many reasons to that, but two stand out. Number one, probably most important, is recognizing the lordship of Jesus means I have to give up my own. I can't be Lord anymore if Jesus is Lord. I can't be my own God anymore if Jesus is my God. And that is a real hurdle for human hearts that are stained by sin. Secondly, is that Jesus defies all expectations. He's not constrained by your expectations. And that's the thing. That's the thing that everybody was missing in the Gospels. We see all these different groups responding in different ways to Jesus, but he was the same throughout. What was different were the expectations that they were placing on him. The religious leaders, they expected him to be one of them. To act like they did, teach like they did, fall right into their club, follow all their rules and battle their demands. And he, he didn't do it. His family, if he wants to be a rabbi, great. But Messiah, healer, someone creating a scene like this, he's, he's lost his mind. He's crazy. The crowds, they they expected him to be an earthly king, a a political ruler. The disciples expected him to be their ticket to the good life. They were in the Messiah's inner circle. And in their minds, that didn't include the whole taking up your cross thing. But Jesus, he wasn't moved by, he wasn't concerned with, he wasn't shaped by or influenced by any expectation that others had from him. He wasn't bothered at all by any box that people tried to put him in. He stayed true to himself and his mission and his father's will. And this wasn't without ramifications. This meant that people were constantly disappointed in him. This meant that people were constantly confused by him. This meant that people were threatened by him. This, meant, this opened him up to ridicule and rejection and scorn and threat and, and eventually death. But there was something that they needed to learn and so do we. And that is that God is not moved or influenced by my expectations. He does not concern himself with my demands. He will do whatever he wants to do and praise his name for that. Because he knows best and his intentions are always pure. I don't know best. My intentions are not always pure. And I need to remind myself again and again and again and again that God better not listen to me. I'd be way worse off if he did. And yet whenever he doesn't, I'm ashamed to admit that too often my reaction mirrors that in which we see the, in the Gospels of Jesus. It's disappointment. See, we're all capable of this. We've all done this, where we hold God to a standard expectation that we created, not Him. God we'll seasons where we praise the Lord and others where we question Him, and, and He didn't change. Our expectations of Him did. We're trying, we were trying to put him in a box, but the line of Judah cannot be contained. And so instead of coming up with two or three action or response points today, I think, I think what I want to do this morning is I just want us to ask the questions this passage is asking. I want to invite some self-reflection for you this morning and then point us to the immense grace of God. And the first question that I really want you to wrestle with today is this. Am I living for an audience of one? You see, the great invitation on our life from Jesus is a really simple one. It's follow me. It's walk the path that I walk. See the world the way that I saw. Pursue what I pursued. I'm out in front and you're following behind me. And how again did Jesus live his life? He tells us, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do what? The will of him who sent me. Jesus lived an incredibly simple life. In every situation, he did what God the Father would want him to do. And that's it. It's incredibly simple. But don't equate simple with easy. Simple is almost never easy. In fact, whenever somebody tries to pursue something with a simplistic focus, no matter how good that thing is, there are always detractors. It always comes with a cost because humans have this way of projecting their expectations onto others. But a follower of Jesus is to rise above this. And live with that same clarity and that same focus. And just ask yourself, what would please God in this situation? And then do that thing. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Now, we all have voices in our heads. We have influences in our lives. And there are times when those voices and influences can be very positive. And then there are other voices and influences that are rarely positive. But as sinners, we're prone to give them much more weight than we should but they all have the same thing in common. They're all sinners and they're all limited. But if seeking to please God is the singular aim of my life, I'm seeking to please the one who's perfect in everything that he does, which is why his voice and his command and his opinion deserves to carry much more weight than all other voices and opinions in my life combined. Luke 14, Jesus makes this shocking statement. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, the language there is shocking, isn't it? It's not something you'd expect to hear from Jesus, which is kind of the point. Now, Jesus is not telling you to hate your family there. There's there's some stuff lost in translation English, right? He would not, and the reason we can know that is he would not contradict his own word that tells us to honor them and obey them and respect them and love them. And so what he is stating is this, to follow him, right, to, to follow Jesus, to be his disciple means that your love and devotion to him is to be so great it makes everything else look like hate in comparison. We are to honor, we are to care for, we are to respect and love and serve our families, but not at the cost of doing God's will for our lives. Which means this, that if God calls you to do something and the closest people in your life don't agree with it or don't understand, you listen to God. Respectfully, humbly, gently, but firmly. And this goes for every voice in our lives. So ask yourself this morning, whose voice really is loudest in your life? Are you more concerned with the opinion of your fellow classmates than with God's? Are you more worried about the acceptance of society and modern culture than you are standing for the truth of God's word? Are you living for the cheers of social media more than the commendation of the Lord? Are you modeling your life after some famous Christian more than you are modeling after Jesus himself? Are you more swayed by the voices of close friends or family than by the leading of God's Holy Spirit? Whose voice is loudest in your life? Is it really the Lord's? The second question I want you to wrestle with this morning is this Am I trying to keep God in a box? What expectations are you placing on God? What limitations are you giving Him? What constraints are you telling Him that He has to work within? God, I'll follow you. I'll obey you, but it has to be close to family. God, I'll follow you. I'll do what you want, but, it, but it's got to be at a certain pay scale or a lifestyle. God, I'll follow you, but it needs to be in a place where I don't have to learn a new language. God, I'll obey you, but I'm—I'm not. That's untouchable. I'm not giving that up. Is God allowed to do something new in your life without resistance? Are you building a frame that you're telling the Lord He has to work within? And if so, how did you come to the belief that you have the authority to do, to draw the box and not Him? How is it that you're constraining your own spiritual growth and the growth of others? Like, does your church experience have to include a certain ministry offering or music style or a time frame or else you just dismiss it? Is there some rhythm of, of a quiet time that's worked for you in the past and so you think that's the only way that you can do it in the future and everybody else has to follow your pattern? Why is it that we're so prone to take the eternal one and try to squeeze him into things more manageable? God refuses to be kept in check by our expectations. He will not be constrained by our boxes. He's going to do what he's going to do and never needs our approval. So we can plan our futures. We can systemize our theology. We can program our ministries, and there's good in all of that, but we must recognize this when we do so, that Jesus Christ will not fit. He often, he will often stretch us in directions that we never saw coming. He remains constant and unchangeable, but he's never predictable. And as we go through, Mark, you're going to see this play out again and again and again. As you go through this life, you're going to experience this again and again and again, which is why there's something we must remember as his followers. And that is that confusion is okay, and even good but anger with the Lord is not. The disciples, as they lived with and learned from and followed Jesus, they were confused more often than they weren't. And that confusion is okay because God knows who we are, He knows that uncertainty has, uh, it serves to drive us to His presence far more than certainty does. And what I mean by this is, is, is as I know me, right? If, if, if God told me the full plan for my life today and gave me all I ever wanted, I would check out and I would never seek him again. But it's in the mystery, it's in the unknown, it's in the searching that we seek him. And when we seek him, a relationship forms and that's how he wants to be known in a relationship. And so the one who doesn't understand what God is doing right now, To the one who's seeking after his will. And right now, he's keeping it veiled. To the one who's prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for something that has not come. To the one whose heart is broken and your soul is confused. God has not left you. He's in the mystery. He's in the confusion. He's in your searching. He's in the heartache. And so give yourself to the questions. Give yourself to the confusion. Give yourself to the grace of God. His compassion for you has not waned. He'll bring good out of this. He promises. And what I promise you is that he wants to lead you through the confusion. He wants to carry you through the pain. And it's because what he wants more than anything is to be known. And he can easily be known. He's given us everything that we need to know him. Just so long as we don't try to keep him in a box we created because he won't fit anyways. So Let's pray. Father, as we look at the reactions that people had to your son when face-to-face with him, too often it mirrors our reactions when you do something unpredictable in our lives. Too often it mirrors our reactions when change comes that we didn't look for. Too often it mirrors our reactions when you don't meet our expectations. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment of response, we would take this moment to seek you and really ask these two questions. God, am I really living for an audience of one? Am I really seeking to please you more than anything else? And if there are voices, if there are influences in my life that have far too much weight and far too much sway, would I I surrender them to you today and appeal to your grace and repent of them? And secondly, God, am I trying to put you in a box Am I telling you a framework that you have to keep your will for my life within? Lord, would would, would you reveal those in us and would you help us to, to surrender those to you, lay them at the foot of the cross to raise up a church that could literally say to you with no hesitation, your will be done, God. Have your way in my life with no constraints. Whatever you want to do, I'll follow. God, would you do this for our sake because your will is always best. And would you do this for the sake of the people that we have yet to reach, the people that we will serve and love when we do follow you. And would you do this for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.